Hey y'all, just a quick little bit up in the intro here before we get into this amazing interview. I wanted to let you all know that in this interview, I'm going to be talking with Avery Dame Griff about the history of the early trans internet. And there's actually been a really, really wonderful discovery that has just come out as I was working on this episode. As you may know, I work for the GLBT Historical Society for my day job. And recently, one of our volunteer archivists, Kara Esten Hurdle, found this amazing CD-ROM of the first four years of transgenderforum.com, which was one of the uh, largest repository of trans materials and community on the uh, 90s internet. And she has uh, uploaded it online for anybody to see. It was covered in Them magazine online. And so we've put links to this in our show notes, as well as the blog post on our website. And you should definitely go check that out if you want to see some of the really wonderful kind of spaces that trans folks were talking to each other on the internet in those early days that me and Avery go into a little bit in our conversation. Enjoy! We've always been here Every single year From ancient gaze right up to today's See, history is queer Some think it's a new way but we've got something to say History is very, 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 very gay Hello everyone, welcome to a bonus episode of History is Gay. I'm Lee Pfeffer, your host. And today I'm sitting down with a wonderful scholar who has written the book that I wish I had when I was younger on the uh, <laughs> dark, dark corners of queer internet as I was growing up. I am sitting down today with Avery Dame Griff. He is a lecturer in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies at Gonzaga University. He founded and curates the Queer Digital History Project, and he is the author of a new book that just came out in August. August called The Two Revolutions, A History of the Transgender Internet. It explores how the rise of the internet shaped trans identity and activism from the 80s to the present, and he uses a combination of archival research and media archaeology, uh, just diving into all of these platforms that are no longer around to uncover these uh, communities and this history. And it was really, really fascinating. And I'm so happy to get an opportunity to chat about his work. So hi, Avery. How are you doing? Good. I it's always fascinating to hear people like introduce the book because when you have it, you're like, oh, my baby has gone into the world. <laughs> my baby. <laughs> Can I just say also I really appreciate I know that I know that podcasting is an audio medium but can I just say how much I really appreciate the cover because it is so viscerally nostalgic it's um if if folks look at the cover which we'll put it up on our website it just looks like you're you're looking at a windows 95 just a couple of windows stacked on each other and it's it makes me giddy at how simple yet effective it is and the like times new roman kind of mm -hmm. crunchy it it reminds me of when i was building geocities websites uh in the 90s <laughs> yeah i was very lucky a lot of academic authors you don't get any input on the cover 
and um, NYU actually gave me a choice. And when I saw this one, this is what I'd always envisioned the cover was. I was like, please don't give me trans flag colors. They sort of do that. <laughs> but, you know, because it is like there's a whole chapter that a lot of it is actually based on the GeoCities archive. So it is that like the very important, but now we would think of it as the ugly 90s, like all that right. sort of DIY aesthetic of like, whenever I do our um, archival work with these, I end up with a downloads folder full of MIDI files. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because- the graf- graphic design is my passion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's let's just start by kind of introducing you a little bit. Could you tell me and the listeners a little bit about you and your background? What first drew you to working on this subject? Yeah, I, I kind of had the academic thing that academics do where I came out as trans in undergrad. And I should also know I've grown up with the internet, possibly earlier than some of my peers. My father used it for work, so we always had it. In the beginning of the book, I described this thing where he would have his computer and I would get the hand-me-down computer. So I was always on the internet. I was notably also, I kind of reference it. I was involved in fandom online. So when I go to college, I come out and all the trans people I know are on the internet, in part because I'm at the University of Alabama in like 2007, 2008. So there are absolutely trans people there, but I don't know them. Mm-hmm. So I'm knowing people through the internet. And so by the time I move on to grad school, kind of start reading about the major histories, there seems to be this gap where I know from my experience, there must be more than suddenly in 1995, there were web browsers and we were on the internet. I know it's there must be more to it. So I sort of came out of this personal experience of knowing and trying to explore, okay, well, what is that missing piece? Because it's sort of, it would be like to give an example. I remember being at a conference when someone asked about, because one of the chapters is about the emergence of the term cisgender. And they're like, mm-hmm. but where did it come from? And I remember that was one of those moments where I could feel the gears turning around like, yeah, that's a good question. Because a part of it, it like it comes from something like Usenet, a thing that lots of folks will not have heard of because it essentially the modern internet pushed it out of fashion except for a couple of groups. But it was so important. So I, I had all this knowledge. I had a familiarity with it. And so I just kind of started collecting that information. And especially because some of it is somewhat poorly preserved, then I mm-hmm. kind of built out the Queer Digital History Project as a place for this to live. And especially because I teach to have a resource to teach to students uh, about kind of like this early internet mattered. You know, it mattered in very specific ways that aren't visible to you because we're just now writing some of those histories. Yeah. Well, and I'm so curious to hear, like, what is it about these these online spaces that you think allowed for this nexus of trans community and trans identity to bloom as opposed to, uh, like, physical spaces and newsletters at the time? And maybe even, like, why, why, like you were saying, you know, you're in college, why is every trans person on the internet? What is the connection here? (laughs) (laughs) What, what allows those things to go together so well? I think there's, this is one of the things I talk about, because early on, one of the huge struggles for building a community, especially because the book starts in the roughly the mid 1980s. And this is sort of after we've had various things that push trans folks out of public life, such as the rise of radical feminism, the closure of the university clinic system. So these are folks who are kind of trying to stay in contact, in contact, but it's hard, especially if you're not in a big area and you're not connected to a local group. Finding information is difficult. So I think a part of it early on was just a desire for information and how easy it was. I talk about the way 
ways in which all of the functions of newsletters, like information circulation and communication, folks realize of the folks who are using these early systems like bulletin boards, they realize early on, oh, this is all this, but so much more efficient. And it's also so much more anonymous. That's a huge benefit in particular. And I think this is often why trans folks are drawn to the internet, is the element of anonymity. Mm. But also a way to explore yourself that is not tied to your physical body. Especially like for early on, folks were sort of coming out online would sometimes describe when they went to hang out in the chat rooms. They would, so say for cross-dressers, because again, this is a period at which the heterosexual cross-dresser is probably the most visible as like an organized group. They would get dressed on femme, even if they're in their like living room by themselves at their like big old blocky CRT monitor. You know, they're still all dressed up. Because they want to have that particular experience, because it's a way to be yourself and to engage with this part of yourself. But there's no risk in the same way that if to use that same example, someone goes on femme, even if they're going with like their local group to say, like a friendly, they're going for like a friendly dinner outing, they are likely going to a safe restaurant that they've already checked out. But that's not a guarantee that other diners aren't going to stare aren't going to intercept them at certain points, aren't going to question why they're there. You don't have it. It's going to happen on the way there or back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't really have any of that. So there's a way to start to explore this stuff. And so it's just so much easier to get information. And it's also there's an element of safety to it. There was always an element of risk when you're meeting in person or when you have physical objects, because it's worth noting physical media in itself by being an object that you can't make invisible holds Mm -hmm. a risk. So like historically, say, work that's looked at like how heterosexual crossdressers talk about this, I think of Robert Hill's work is they would talk about like the when wives would find the trunk and the trunk had all this stuff. And then, oh no, what's going to happen? Or say, Deirdre McCloskey in her memoir, talking about kind of coming out as trans in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, She was a big BBS user, so bulletin board system user. She talks about how there were like books that you could check out from the library. And they were read at the library books because the mm-hmm. books that were too well known as trans books. He was like, what happens when I have to make eye contact with a librarian? And she, I have this book. And suddenly we both know why I have this book because there's only one reason you have this book. Right. Um, where there are books that you weren't really famous. Their names were kind of vague. And it's like, okay, you can check that out. Nobody's going to clock that this is a book about a trans person. Right. It's like Daughters of Belitis calling themselves Daughters of Belitis and then being like, well, we could always just tell people we're a poetry club <laughs> or any number of other coded ways that we've managed to find community. Yeah, definitely. And also, like, that was sort of the problem of communication is you couldn't ensure full privacy. So this is something I've talked about before. There's like, and I'll note a lot of what I'm referencing comes, a lot of the early archives that we have of stuff is, like I said, from heterosexual crossdressers because this is when they're most active. They're producing a ton of materials. So in like Trias's newsletter, so the Society for the Second Self, the biggest heterosexual cross-dressing organization in the US for many years, someone wrote in a letter about this experience they had where they were, they had a member and they were sending stuff off to their post office box. Um, or actually, no, this was one, this was basically about why you need a post office box. So they were sending stuff to this person's home and it turns out that and this is, I'll do an immediate content warning. You might need to do one on this, that this person had committed suicide and they had committed mm-hmm. suicide in interest and their parents found them. Oh, God. And the organization, the chapter got a letter being like, please stop sending this to this house. And so the letter being like, this is why you need a post office box because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to find it. You need all these layers of security. 
And in particular, when newsletter authors or magazine authors are trying to sell trans community members on the internet, a part of how they sell it is like, like you can just hide files. You can just delete them. You can give them weird names and put them like five folders in and nobody's going to know what it is. You'll know, but it gives like a layer of security. You can password protect stuff. You know, you can do all these methods to give yourselves layers of security and protection that you just can't with physical media in the same way. There's always a risk with a physical object that may not be there with a digital object. Yeah. I, I want to dig more into what you've been, you know, you've been bringing up heterosexual cross-dressers, because I think that at times like this can be a little bit of a bugbear is, you know, one of the things that is so fascinating about your research and about the book is the ways in which community building on these platforms played an essential part in developing and defining community terminology mm -hmm. and community kind of like boundaries. Mm -hmm. If you were to give like a brief kind of trajectory of where we start in the 80s and who's using these systems and not necessarily where we are today, but, you know, a little bit later, where does some of that split happen and what do you think contributes to mm -hmm. I mean, frankly, the the erasure of the really, really important role that folks we might not necessarily put into the larger, you know, queer or trans umbrella because of their own orientations. Mm -hmm. Now, their huge impact to creating this community mm -hmm. that we enjoy yeah. now. It's the funny thing about kind of the history of this period is this is why I mentioned that thing about kind of the 70s and the end of the 70s and the sort of retreat of the publicity of the trans person in public life. Because uh, mm -hmm. the 80s within the community, I'd say very much a moment where there's a lot of infrastructure building that is not very radical or exciting, but it becomes very important later on. So this is sort of where we see like organizations like Try us for those, the side second self, met for heterosexual crossdressers. They've been around for a really long time, but they are sort of able to survive things like the closure of the clinic system or connection to radical feminism because they are not the target. And these are also many of these folks, these are stable middle class individuals in many cases. And this also gets into like the critique of the kind of racial and class politics of the community right. at the time. But so once we hit the mid 80s, like these are the folks who are most active and they're the most organized. Mm. I quote from somebody who's like making a comment in, I'm going to say the late 1980s about some changes Tapestry is making. And they very directly say like, they should remember the people who brought them to say, they should remember the people who pay for this magazine. And that people is us, heterosexual crossdressers. Um, so they're like highly visible. They're highly organized. They're building a lot of infrastructure. And they're also, because many of them are middle class, they're more likely to be computer users, especially if they have like a computer for a like white collar job, they use one at an office. It feels less unusual or foreign to have one at home or to maybe even, they might've already done some sort of like remote computing before for a system like uh, CompuServe when it was timesharing oriented. So they're already sort of familiar with the idea of how this stuff works. So for them, the idea of communicating online doesn't seem so foreign. Mm -hmm. You can sort of see this in, I have an archive that was donated to me of the very first trans mailing list, CD4, notably it went by CD Forum, even though it sort of encompasses all kind of trans folks that CD is for cross-dressing. Cross and so like I had this archive of it. And if I kind of look at, we wouldn't even call them, have called them emails at the time, but you can see they're coming from folks who work at universities or who work at big corporations. You know, they work at places that are already connected to what at the time is ARPANET, 
And if you are there, again, you're a university or a major corporation or you work in tech. So you've, you know, you're, you're pretty stable, pretty well off. Um, so like this is the dominant population. So these are the folks who are accessing spaces, who are sort of advocating for change. And it's also worth noting because this from, I would say the mid eighties until probably starting to die off by the early 1990s, there's also the idea of the term is the gender community. No one loves the term the gender community in the 80s, <laughs> but we are the gender community. So we are heterosexual crossdressers, transsexuals, and then transgenderists in the middle. You know, and so we have all these groups together. It's sort of a not exactly unhappy alliance, but nobody loves the term. There's always this kind of push and pull about who should be at the center of the community. Mm. And so if this is kind of the mid 80s, by the end of the 80s, there's increasing interest in political activism. And in actually doing advocacy, because if trans folks writ large, what we now call trans folks have retreated from public life by the end of the 80s, they're starting to step back out. You see the founding of IFGE, the International Foundation for Gender Education, if I remember that correctly. So Melissa Lynn Cheryl, or Melissa Cheryl Lynn founds IFGE, and its goal is public facing. Its goal eventually becomes political. So the idea is like, how do we advocate for civil rights? And so there's increasing kind of who's going to go out into the public and who's going out at the time as well are heterosexual crossdressers. These are the most visible folks. These are like when I teach this, these are the folks going on Donahue. They're going on Sally Jesse Raphael. Um, you also do have some trans advocates going on at the time, but most frequently it was often crossdressers. So these are the folks who are going out in public life to sort of publicly advocate. And then by the early 1990s, when you start to see this move toward transgender, the idea of the we are this umbrella identity that is united by our different relationships to gender. And so like sort of it's like, how do all of these folks fit? And so part of how the internet comes into this is the internet is how this term spreads. It's how folks become familiar with it, especially because as more and more folks have access to the internet. Computers are becoming more common beginning by the early to mid 1990s. Uh, the World Wide Web sort of blows everything out of the water by the mid 90s. If they're kind of trying to find this information, they're using the word transgender. So when they come into the community, this is the mode they come in with. So they have a different interpretation. So then by the late 1990s, early 2000s, this is also one of the things I track. You have this generational change as well, where mm. Suddenly, we go from our sort of primarily folks who are middle-aged, they have sort of established themselves before they become involved in the community, to having trans youth. These are kids who are growing up with computers. Their families got them for work. They got them because they were sort of told you need them for school. This is when the Clinton administration is pushing this newer digital economy. You got to have a computer. They're becoming more affordable. So they've already always been online. So that's how they look for information. And they start to talk to each other because the community has had, for their own safety, disincentivized interacting with youth mm -hmm. because of fears about safety for adults, how parents might react. Uh, so yeah, we see this kind of generation change to trans youth. They've always existed, but sort of coming together as a visible demographic to say like, oh, we're all, we can come out really young, but we also have different ideas about how to do gender. You know, these are folks who are coming into kind of particularly like a queer identity. The idea of being gender queer is a thing. At this time, that is not present earlier on. If folks are androgynous in the 80s, then there absolutely were folks who were like within the community. They sort of got anything that wasn't a transsexual was sort of lumped under a crossdresser. Right. And so how yeah. these androgynous folks like Ariadne Kane are doing gender, it's not really what we would think of as like genderqueer 
in the late 2000s. And so they have all these different ideas about how to do gender, and they bring these different approaches that really transform how the community sees itself. Well, and in terms of language, I mean, there's there's so much emphasis I, with what you just said, the generational change and the generational change in how we're thinking about gender, thinking about doing gender and what the standards are in terms of talking about gender and talking about transness. There is so much of an emphasis on using, you know, quote unquote, correct or most up to date language online and and offline, but it's a lot of, you know, mm. not to use the cliched phrase, but like terminally online or whatever, which I hate, but <laughs> because it provides so much, mm-hmm. but there's, there's a lot of, for lack of a better word, like language policing mm. that often comes at somewhat of a generational gap. What can we learn from the ways our predecessors interacted with nascent language that were, they were creating for the community in how we talk about ourselves now? You know, you've said words that without context, some people might balk at, you know, transvestite, transsexual. Mm. Like, I want to encourage people to, to fight that initial, like, hey, hey, wait. Hey, wait, don't say that impulse, because these are words that are were and are still important to us. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing about doing this work. I think, say, to give an example, like when I teach my students who are probably from like 19 to 21, I have say like when I talk about like having them watch clips of Donahue, when they try to figure out, they're like, wait, are these trans women? Like what's happening here? Because right, these yeah. different categories, this is sort of, it's a totally different time. Because you, the, one of the things that is sort of why I call it like the two revolutions, one of those revolutions is, well, what are we going to call ourselves? Like I referenced, there is this term, the gender community, that emerges because, well, we need something. Because there's these two groups of people that have similarly, like, similar political interests in some ways, but they don't really get along mm-hmm. because they're sort of the, they, there is, it's like the, the magnets where they both attract and repel each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you have that. They're still of, doing gender, mm-hmm. quote unquote, wrong in the eyes of like normative society. <laughs> But the internal motivations are different. Yeah. And so, like, they also, and they serve a problem because they both, like, for heterosexual cross-dresses is sort of standard within the community. This is often, like, um, cited to, like, Virginia Prince, who has a huge influence on that sort of, like, mainstream thought. Is the idea that we don't want to be too close to transsexuals because then the wives are going to worry that you, what you really want to do is transition, which did ha- did happen. But this idea not too close, and then for transsexual folks, they're sort of like for them, they're like we are not pretending. Like again, there are, air quotes are happening. Scare quotes. You can't see. Yeah. Like we are not pretending our gender. We are, and if we're too closely associated with that, people would just be like, "Oh, well, you're just like that." It's like, no, we're not that. And so there's this need to be together, but there's also this like push and pull because again, these are two kind of very firmly entrenched camps. And so like, yeah, they use this sort of like terminology. They have the essentially, it's like I said, you've got your crossdresser, your transsexual, and then the sort of in between category of a transgenderist, which comes from a couple of different folks. Virginia Prince is probably the most famous of these people to really like adopt the term. And I want to say like 76. But these are folks who identify as the opposite gender, live as the opposite gender full time, may or may not pursue hormone replacement therapy, but have no interest in like essentially any kind of like bodily surgery. Mm. 
you know, they're not saying what we now call gender confirmation surgery. It's like you, you just kind of got these buckets that people fall in. And so they're together. And so one of this revolution is around and like I include in the book like figures where they do like this word mix and match. Like, well, yes, what do we I call ourselves? Gonna, I was just going to mention that. One of my favorite things early on in the book is this, literally, it's a mix and match of, I mean, people think that these words are so intractable, but it's literally a series of inventions of things that are constantly changing. And it's very fun. You have like a mix and match of like, biophile and crossvert. And like, it's fantastic. <laughs> and it's sort of like, that's a thing that sometimes, like, as I talk about this, people don't always get is that like, these folks could be sassy, like they made fun of each other, they could be mean to each other. It's like right. any other small community, like, they know each other, and they like, will go in after each other sometimes. And this is <laughs> one of those examples, because everybody was trying to figure out, well, what do we we like, we're moving into like a future, like a new future, especially if we're going after these political goals, like, what do we call ourselves? Because we don't want these like medical terms. We've used them because they're recognizable, but we don't really identify with them. They represent things we don't feel about ourselves. So like one example early on was the advocacy by crossdressers to move away from the term transvestite, which historically was seen as very kind of sexualized in terms of like uh, as a pathology. Right. So the idea of introducing the term crossdresser as an alternative. So like Carol Beecroft, who was a longtime president of Trias, like led this campaign amongst members to write to textbook publishers, like of psychology textbooks. Be like, use this term, not that term. Like, here's who I am. Here's what we're about. We'd like you to change your terms. Like, actually advocating for change, for adoption of new terms. Because this was sort of always the fight, was that the terms we have were given to us by, like, medical professionals and doctors. And they don't really, we don't really identify with them. But then what do we call ourselves? Because there's also, as we move into late A's, everyone has, like, these different relationships to gender. And the two existing categories, they're very binary oriented. You're moving from one Mm -hmm. to the other, and these two things don't cross. But if you look at how, for example, say, because these are the folks who wrote the most during this period, like cross-dressers talk about their gender. This is one of the things I find fascinating about the mailing list because it was so private. When these folks talk about how they relate to gender, in some ways, you could talk about that right now in the same way like a non-binary person might talk about in that way, but they don't have that framework. Right. So like how folks are living and understanding their own genders are much fuzzier than what these terms actually embody. And so this is one of the things that folks also struggle with. They're like, I don't really love this term, but it's what I got to use because otherwise it's not recognizable. So there's all these moves about, well, how do we find new terminology? Because this is sort of one of the arguments Holly Boswell makes in 1992 for adopting transgender is she's like, this can open up new ways to think about gender beyond what we have. Hmm. And so, of course, Virginia Prince, being Virginia Prince, um, hates that someone uses it. And then she proposes the term bi-gender, which nobody, also nobody likes. And is like, why? That's very confusing. It doesn't sound <laughs> natural. And my favorite thing is that a uh, community advocate in Texas, like, has this letter that gets quoted all the time at the time where she starts out with a joke that people are just going to read as big ender. They're just going to think people have big, it's a group of people with big butts. <laughs> you know, she's like, this makes no sense. And then. So- I mean, honestly, that's like that story uh, somewhere in the book of that Playboy journalist going onto mm-hmm. one of the the online newsletters thinking that, ah, yes, it's it's about it's about gender. It's I'm going to find ladies talking about sex here. And <laughs> it's and that's like the first mainstream reference to like uh, a 
a trans bulletin board system, which for like a modern listener, you just basically this a server that lives in some some space that you can dial in with a modem. And like that server holds the whole community, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just like it's about gender. So I'm going to meet ladies, aren't I? And it's like, nope, you're going to be a bunch of trans folks talking about boring trans things. There is some like erotic content on it, but that's not the primary focus of it by far. So yeah, like everybody, like they're you're trying to figure it out. And so all these proposals about new terminology that thinks about gender different. Like Ariadna Kane in particular proposed the term conscious gender community, which huh. also doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. <laughs> but yeah, you see sort of all these moves for how do we talk about ourselves? How do we think about ourselves? And so by having so much more space and ability to communicate much more quickly, it sort of like launches this stuff off to be like, oh, we can invent new words. Mm-hmm. Notably, these folks have a different attitude toward language than say we have now. To go back to your earlier question is that there's very much an idea. Like I have this quote. I think it's when I'm talking about this around sort of use of language in like probably the mid 2000s where Alison Leong um, who's president of IFG at the time. She says, like, I know we're all debating these terms and people are struggling with adopting transgender. She's like, I think the thing to remember is, like, I don't really care what you call me as long as you call me to dinner. You know, so what's important is that we come together. The language stuff is sort of for us to argue about, but that's not for other people to know about. We need to have a unified face. Right. And so this is her point. Like, she's like, this is this works. Basically, she's sort of saying without saying, just roll with it. Because it it works. We know it's working. You know, and so there's much less of a kind of like slice and dice around identity, which I sort of I I've argued I don't exactly argue in the book, but I've argued in articles, is like that slice and dice effect of kind of like having to like have these very strict labels around what and what those labels mean is an effect of the internet and the way in which folks of different identities have felt by digital platform systems sort of shoved together in the same space. Notably, ironically, in a way that these earlier smaller communities um, that was sort of like small isolated groups, you didn't have to feel shoved in with each other. You could have your sort of own space. But by having mass platforms that shove everyone together, that increases this feeling of a need to be like, I am this. I define myself as this. You're using my term the wrong way. And then those sort of mm. internecine like language fights. Right. Well, and talking about platforms, one of the limitations you have and anybody working with, you know, digital archiving is the lack of concrete and tangible artifacts. And so what role does having platforms that disappear or ebb and flow or, you know, proprietary content have in archiving this and in finding out this information and not disappearing to the ether of internet past? It's funny, I think when we talk about like why, when I talk about like why we don't know so much about the history, this is a part of it. Cause notably some of like, I have a whole chapter that is heavily focused on proprietary platforms, especially AOL during the eighties and nineties. That is a platform where a huge amount of things happened on it. I have almost no archival evidence of it. And what I have is because someone happened to save some screenshots. In this case, Gwen Smith, who ran it, she saved a couple screenshots. And like, I have what's in her memory. And hopefully if she ever shares it, because I know she has some of her own from her personal archive, she might have some of that in her personal archive. That's it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So there are these moments where like, because things got locked behind paywalls, you know, or they were on a corporate platform, there was no incentive to save them. So we don't really know this history. And like, this is, I think, a problem for now. I've talked about this in 2019. I led what I call a semi-successful attempt to archive some LGBT Yahoo groups because Yahoo groups were hugely important. I remember for like the you're going to your late 2000s into like the 2010s as like a more private space we could have file sharing and hosting and you didn't really need to have your own server for it so like these things like blossom there were a ton of these i talk about in the book when i first came out in alabama we had a yahoo group that was how i knew other people lived in state like i was part of the yahoo group but then by 2019 if people used a yahoo group it was because it had become the default mailing list and nobody really caught on that it was a group it was just like, it was basically like, oh, there's a mailing list and it exists on a server somewhere and we don't have to worry about it. But Yahoo Groups was full of these like defunct groups that had once been very active. Mm. So like one of the things I talk about at the end was stuff like um, transgender news and views, which is this huge archive of so much like trans related content because it was just an aggregator and it aggregated everything. It aggregated mainstream content, it aggregated blogs, it aggregated press releases from organizations that no longer exist. And so it's this massive archive of stuff. And it covers like 20 years. And so when we leave that to our corporate platform, in this case, like with Yahoo Groups, it just, it would vamoose. I managed to pull that one down. It's just gone. Um, Or, and this came from my own personal experience, for trans masculine and trans male folks who were interested in surgical interventions, like there were groups for that about what to expect. And that had like results photos for different doctors. And the, the idea was, again, these were kind of somewhat private spaces. And so these were years of information that in this case, I wasn't able to preserve them, but I sort of knew existed because they had just become, even if you weren't really using Yahoo groups, you knew to go join it because that's where everything was. Mm-hmm. And so this, and basically because again, it was on a corporate platform at some point, it no longer, it was a problem on the balance sheet and it was easier to get rid of it. And so like right. that history just vanishes. So this is like the risk of relying on corporate platforms is that you don't own the thing you make and that corporate platform could get rid of it. This is why. Or, my- or even outside of that, just the nature of increasingly increasing obsolescence of various technologies, you know, just losing things because there's no more support for that medium that it's on. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I will say like one of the, you know, one of the saddest things to me is the fact that I will never ever recover some of the really formative like fan fictions that I discovered early on in my queer identity. I will never find those again, ever. You know, a lot of these community created resources are just gone. Yeah, it's it's why like my white whale of the thing I don't know will ever succeed at, <laughs> but I really want to. So I guess this is a call out if anyone wants to help. It would be to archive live journal. Yes. It is incredibly yeah. it is technically complex and it is resistant to archiving on purpose. And it is now controlled by a Russian company who has zero interest in the fact that queer people really liked it in the mid two thousands. Um, but it holds so much. And but I like I know how important it is. But then also another thing that about this kind of corporate platform archiving is you also butt up against the legality of it in terms right. of you are using someone else's resources and does that violate the terms of service? And so what does that mean? So this is the 
say for Yahoo groups, this was one of the things the internet archive is up against again and again and again is how long will our IP last to our IP band because we're making too many calls by doing archiving. And then you're like, how many like IPs can we cycle through at a VPN until they just ban the whole range? <laughs> um, you know, or they throttle any access to the thing that's required in order to do effective archiving. So, like, this is when I've tried to do live journal. This is one of the many issues I've run up against is, like, that resistance. And so it, it it's hard because this stuff is so important. But to know that that all of this stuff, I know how important it is, but also that, like, it could go away. And what you can do as a community is incredibly limited. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's something also to be said about the switch from, I mean, there's, you know, multiple existing at the same time, but kind of centralized spaces, as opposed to the incredibly decentralized trans community of today's internet. You know, it's easier to say, oh, cool, here's this Yahoo group, here's this live journal community that's talking about this topic or bringing these folks together. And then you look at something like, Tumblr or Twitter, other just just social media in general, and how do you reconcile trying to track trans uh, and you know for the larger part like queer history and queer inter- and in interaction and community building when it's so spread out now? Oh, I've, oof, there is a reason why the <laughs> queer to doors project ends in twenty ten. Yeah, there you go. In part because this is when a part of it is a this is sort of when digital preservation had always sort of been happening, but web digital preservation is increasingly taken seriously. Mm. Also notably because the it's more likely that the folks who have produced this content may or may not have been at a, a tender age, shall we say, when they produced it. Right. So I think of the work of like Katie McKinnon at University of Toronto, who is starting to work with folks who like were were teens in Canada, like looking at kind of yeah. their archival media of like how do we explore this with them instead of just sort of having it. So it's that's why I sort of I stop there, but it does present a real problem because I think many of these systems are built with the assumption that they will exist forever. They're not mm. built to end. In the same way that some like print publications sort of always assumed we will not be here forever, but we will be here for folks when they need it. Um, so platforms sort of just assume we'll just keep growing and growing and growing and suddenly we're not. And what do we do? Oh, we've been bought. Oh, we don't make anyone any money. Goodbye. Right. And so this is one of the things I talk about at the end of the book is the importance of the community owning its history. So having yeah. spaces owned by the community, but also that come, because it's possible to do, come built in with the assumption that this will end one day. And it's okay that it ends. It doesn't have to exist forever, but it may end one day. And so we have to think about what does it mean to archive it in the same way that when I talk at the end of the book, but like Dallas Denny, who founded the National Transgender Library and Archive in the early 90s. So Dallas Dane is a very well-known activist. And so like she is running this um information clearing house. And so she's also getting all these newsletters. And after she comes out, she realizes she's like, oh no, we have this all this history nobody's saving. So she just starts right. saving stuff, like just hordes of stuff that forms the basis of this archive. But the thing is with that physical media, it sort of made sense. There was like a precedent for it to like to save it. And we we didn't. For most folks, we haven't had that precedent because the idea is, again, platforms will live forever. But the thing is, they won't. They won't live forever. And so thinking ahead is if we're going to have a space that we design and we own, a part of that should be that we assume it will not be here forever. And you get a say over if it archived. Do you want everything you have to basically self-destruct if it goes down and it's archived? 
You should have the right to do that. You know, do you want it to be there, but anonymized? These are all things that are, can be technically built into systems ahead of time, as opposed mm-hmm. to this idea that's growth at any cost, continuous growth. Right. And then, but at some point, there's no question of like, but what happens when we stop growing? Because in the mid 90s, early to mid 90s, I guarantee you there were Americans who were like, AOL will be here forever. They were right. everywhere. You couldn't like walk 20 feet without falling over an AOL CD somewhere. It's like your blockbuster <laughs> to your Rite Aid. They were everywhere. And now, the this is a joke I say to my students. I ask them, how do they know about AOL? And inevitably, one of them will have like an aunt or a grandma or an uncle who has an AOL.com email address. That's what they know about AOL. And that makes perfect sense because like they've had that email forever. It still works. So it's fine. Somehow. (laughs) You know, yeah. Somehow it still works. But that's what they remember because people used to think AOL would exist forever. AOL thought AOL would exist forever. It didn't. They made a disastrous decision to buy Time (laughs) Warner, you know, and so things remember. It's like these things won't be forever. I mean, we're seeing that right now with Twitter, Mm -hmm. you know, like it it hurts to know how much queer community and trans community will be lost from as garbage as that website is like there's just so much content and it's so it's so hard to track that on a platform like that but knowing how people talked about transness three years ago on that platform versus right now is so essential to the way we move forward And it's so difficult to figure out, okay, how do we save this? I mean, I remember back in November when everybody first thought the platform was going going down, everybody was scrambling to figure out a way to preserve their life on that space for whatever was going to come next because they didn't want to lose that repository of that entire personal and community history. Yeah, it's... It's it's hard because I think that is sort of the perfect contemporary example of I think of say the work around the hashtag girls like us the yeah. idea of that yeah, is this whole community that forms and I'm sure some of it is still there but it is no longer as safe or stable because of what has changed and I think this is like the thing I sometimes when I teach trans history I teach a class about trans social movements and one of the things that sometimes surprise students when, when I'm teaching this history to them is they'll be like, oh, we've had this argument before? And I'm like, yes, we've yeah. had this argument oh, yeah. two or three times, and it's barely changed, right. in part because you don't, understandably, you don't know we've had this argument because it happened on all these different platforms. Right. Um, and so like the best you could do is at least if someone is writing about it, because the one thing about many of these early platforms I talk about in the book is up until the era of like GeoCities, what's so like chapter four, like if you weren't like super online, you may or may not have known about any of these. You might or might not have been really involved in them. You know, people did not start getting super duper online until the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So you may not have even known any of this happened. So it's like the idea of at least like having some archives, having some writing about it suggests that we can know because having that past also teaches us, gives us tools for the future. The I feel like this is a drum I'm banging all the time now about the <laughs> Communications Decency Act. It's like Communications Decency Act and how we responded to it in the mid 90s is incredibly important in this moment 
when we are repeating the same errors and it posed the same threat to queer youth now as it did in 1994 and 1995. But we don't, folks don't know about the Communications Decency Act. They, they don't really know about it. So this is, I'm like, this is why that teaching matters because it tells us that they tried this once and we managed to stop it. And folks had these very articulate arguments about why it mattered. We need to know those arguments so we can use them again. Because if you right. don't know your own history, then this is the same thing when I talk about, like, especially trans youth, speaking of folks often impacted by things like right. COSA. Um, yeah, ex- I was just about to bring up COSA. Yep. That this is the thing I sort Which, of. If people don't know, Kids Online Safety Act. Is that what it's mm-hmm, yeah. masquerading as? Yeah. So COSA does a lot of the same things as communications decency, but restricting young people's access to the internet, what they can see. Also, it allows sort of like the loose enforcement amongst attorney generals around some of this stuff, which means that you will get either ones who are very interested in safety or ones who are very interested in particular kinds of content they think are inappropriate for youth, aka queer stuff. Mm-hmm. So this is why my kind of... I teach about this with trans youth, pushing back at this idea that trans youth are this new phenomenon. When we sort of see from the history of the internet, trans youth have always existed even before this work. So like Jules Gill-Peterson's work around the transgender child, the work around Vanguard as an early youth organization, San Francisco. We have all this evidence that queer and trans youth have been around. But the internet made it possible for them to get to know each other and talk to each other simply because they couldn't access the organized community because they were youth. And also, they were not as mobile, or they didn't have as, of, as much money as trans adults did in order to participate in conferences, to go to meetings, to be independent and mobile. So the internet sort of circumvents all of that. It also gives them privacy. Whereas you get something in the mail, there's a possibility your parent will open it. You get an email to a second email address that you only open like secretly. You always log out of. They don't know that exists. You can have this whole other like email life your parents don't know about where you talk about all this stuff. And these are things that the internet makes possible. And so like when I talk to trans youth, I say, you guys are not some new phenomenon. You've always been around. It's just the internet made it more and more possible for you to talk to each other and to look around and be like, oh, there's lots of us actually. And we have thoughts about our fate and what we need. And now we can organize together to advocate for ourselves. And so like that is what it brings about is the ability to organize. And so like I especially like I said when I, I teach this to like trans youth in particular, I'm sort of like, you have a history. You do not need to be afraid that you are new and doubt yourself. And this is why this history is important, so that you know. Because otherwise it's easy to kind of give into the idea of like, well am I just pretending? It's like, no. And I guarantee you there was a some kid in nineteen eighty nine who was real techie and has accessing a mailing list, asked themselves the same question. We have always been asking ourselves this question, and that's okay. But each time they've managed to find community online that reassured themselves, no, I know who I am. You talked at the very beginning of this about you being in fandom spaces. That has been my experience as well. And fandom is is largely how I came to discover my own queer identity and then later my own trans identity. What did you find in the course of your research 
did did you find a, a space for this specific kind of engaging with media and fictional characters aligning with online trans identity? It's funny. It's a thing I don't talk about much in the book because it's not really in the archives, in part because the archives were these like organized middle class ladies. But there's right. <laughs> stuff in those archives if you know where to look for to see those traces. So some of this you'll see like fanfic that gets printed. Um, So like the one I referenced in the book about like the Star Trek fanfic, basically like sort of a cross-dressing gender change fanfic. Yeah. There is definitely somebody's fan art of uh, Lynn Minmay from Mer- Macross and or from the US at the time, Robotech, which like I clocked as a thing, even though you sort of pass them off as like, here's this nice lady. I'm like, mm, that's your fan art. I know what that is. Um, <laughs> there was also a real interest when Viz started publishing at the US in Ranma one half because of like this. It had these ideas about gender that were not mainstream in the US. So you sort of see these little like threads of it coming in and out, you know, because some of these folks, you know, if you're especially if you're into computers, if you're publishing, you are using a computer at the time, which means you're a little more techie, you know, so you're already into this stuff like Crosstalk, which was a major magazine for, I want to say, about 10 years in the late 90s, publishes these various comic series, some of which are like full on like very clearly inspired by heavy metal mm. you know so you see these threads throughout um and one of the things that i reference but i don't talk about a lot in the book is that sort of wherever fandom has gone in a way like the community has also followed so there's mm. great work by like casey fiesler out of university of colorado and some other folks look at the migration of fandom across like these different platforms and trans folks have followed essentially the same path up to about Tumblr and then the question of what after Tumblr is unresolved. Right. But they've always sort of followed it. And for some folks, increasingly, as fandom became more a thing you could get involved with, fandom became a way to come in and to know gender. I was on the internet because of fandom. I was active on LiveJournal. I have a very embarrassing LiveJournal that I have locked down real tight that I both Ooh. talked about fanish things, but also talked same. my way through gender. Hat. Same hat. You know, and <laughs> so media has always sort of been a way to explore this stuff and to feel safe exploring it in a way that you might not have felt safe in real life. In the same way, one of the speaking of archiving, I'm sure there are folks who used MUD, so multi user dungeons, as a way to explore and think about gender because these were quite popular. They were special popular within furry communities. Um, as a way to like explore this stuff, but well, we don't really have that archive, but Folks absolutely did. Yeah. And that carries forth the same way that now folks use RPGs as a way. I was just teaching about this. Use like tabletop role playing as a way to think about and explore different approaches to gender. Maybe when they may or may not exactly be ready to like live it out, it's a way to think about it. And that goes back to some, like I said, it could go back to some of these earlier practices on text only multi, uh, multi-user dungeons in the 1970s and 80s. Oh, I mean, I, I wish we could talk. All day. I know that you have some limited time. I have so many more things I would love to talk with you about. What are some of your favorite stories or favorite things in the course of your research that you uncovered? What surprised you? Well, that's a that's a good question. <laughs> I think the story I think I think people find most amusing because they know so little about it is about the story of cisgender, which I usually mm-hmm. sum up as like there was one kook on Usenet who used it a lot. And that's the reason we have it, because she made it 
very visible. And she, if there was an opportunity to get in a fight with somebody, she'd take it always. <laughs> she were always, she was always looking for an opportunity to fight with somebody. And I think it has a way in which what you don't expect is the thing that might launch something into the stratosphere, like those little stories of that. Or sometimes it's not even what's in the book, but what happens afterwards. To give an example, when I, I say I teach this class about trans social movements, um, one of the things I have them do when we're talking about the late 1990s, about this generation change, A, I make them read the book, but I have them explore these um, trans teen websites. Mm. I apologize. That's the cat. It's almost food time. So... <laughs> I have them explore these trans teen websites and I had not caught this, but I, the last time I taught this class, they were looking through the websites and I had a group stop me and they're like, have you seen this? I was like, what? And one of the pages, it's only ever updated once. So we just have one archive copy is from a young woman who was coming. I teach at Gonzaga University, was coming to Gonzaga in 2000 as a freshman. And so like this moment for them of being like, what? But she's here. Actually, I had a student who was like, I lived close to her. We're being like, this was a person who at the time was coming from a place close to me to come here. And I'm here now. And I just started college. The idea of like, of also kind of, even if uh, it's not exactly what we find in the book, but this kind of like, this history comes back to be like, oh, and so like we would talk about it. Like, what would it have been like for this person to come to at the time was a much more conservative Jesuit university, states away from their family and try to live as themselves? Mm-hmm. Be like, were they taking a class in this room? Because we know colleges don't often update their buildings. <laughs> right. You know, so like, they may have taken a class in this room, you know, in the same space to sense that like you are directly connected to this history. And I'd never clocked that until my students caught it. But really the, the, the way in which you don't always expect that you will connect to that history. Maybe it's that you ran across a Usenet post of Laura Blake and you never thought anything of it until you're like, oh, that uh, lady who liked to yell a lot was actually really important. <laughs> Right. Or like that what someone has posted before I, it connects to me now. I, I, I didn't exactly get your question, but like these are the things no, I think that, about. No, that makes a yeah. lot of sense. I mean, because hindsight is such a beautiful thing, especially in regards to gender, like things that I did not realize that I was doing and that were extremely gender things. Just I have memories of going online and going to these, you know, trans teen websites mm-hmm. or going to these websites, specifically like FTM websites about how best to pass and how to bind and was fascinated at the concept of packers. I did not idea as trans at the time. I was just really fascinated by this and it seemed really adjacent to, you know, just like queerness. And I was just really interested. Cut to, oh, that's, oh, because I was like, I don't want to be a boy, but I'm really, it, let me just. Let me just watch an hour of somebody's, you know, tea journey on YouTube. It's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, and not having the, the language to, to, to identify within that. Um, it's the, the funny thing. Like they, they write these, like, and I don't know if this will go with the podcast. I, I always run over, but it, it's funny. So I've been writing this paper thinking about, well, what is all this information seeking mean for the community? Like tracking this up to like search end. And, and a part of it is now messing around with large language models. So I've ha- developed this habit of asking large language models to write me trans people's coming out posts. And oh. almost universally, they are this just like perfectly linear narrative. You've learned. I've been on a journey. 
I had supportive family and friends, and now I've come out. And I sent these to a close friend of mine who is also trans. I sent her one of these. I was like, can you look at this and tell me what you think? And they were like, this is very respectability politics, one and done, like, please don't hate me for being trans. And I was like, yes, that was my approach too. That this sort of the messiness of coming out, the part where you look at stuff, you're not exactly sure. I'm sure if I diverted us, we could have a whole conversation about Hudson's F to M guide. I think my students have no idea what it is anymore. Um, And that that extreme emphasis on stealth and on passing. And I mean, we we haven't had time to get into it, but one of the things I really would love to talk with you another time about is that disconnected dichotomy between early trans internet really being femme focused and you know what do you do with like the trans masculine ftm community like where are those spaces you know why do those come in so late and that is a question i don't have a great answer for it's just so <laughs> it is it is a part of this like a part of honestly kind of like that generational change that is also about yeah. kind of like economics and wealth and who has access to what mm. um and the ease of which to do one thing or the other in some ways like this is a longer conversation but yeah it's it's all that stuff is messy it's very messy but like the expectations of like what it is supposed to look like is something that these like modern systems just don't capture it's like oh yeah you just do this you write this nice post you ask people to just be nice about you coming out and it'll be fine and it's like no this stuff was messy and weird and you have weird journeys and you'll come out once and you come out twice and then maybe not maybe you change your mind and that's all okay but yeah. Like these these sort of flat models that essentially this kind of what well, I think is this flattening of the modern internet, the idea of regularizing all kind of interaction in order to essentially in order to be able to extract more value from it. It misses the way in which these earlier I think you the, the idea of kind of these earlier little weird communities more reflected the reality of what it is to be trans, which is it's messy, it's weird. You're gonna have weird feelings about gender. You may encounter these documents that tell you one thing, you might butt up against it. That's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's hard because you otherwise what you the thing I talk about at the end of the book for like the, the questioning person coming out, I have this real concern about what is the kind of information information you're being given and how does it not reflect the sort of like reality of like this this stuff's hard. It's confusing. That's okay. There's no right or yep. wrong way. Yeah. I think I think that really ties back into our conversation around language is, you know, we have created this standard and that's been done out of self-preservation, out of safety, out of a need for the outside of the community to use language and to talk about our experiences and our stories with respect and with validity. But at the same time, it's flattened those experiences of, and now the only correct quote-unquote way to be trans is that I was always this gender and I always knew and it's, this is the way to talk about it. As opposed to like, there are still many, many trans people who still think about themselves. Like, yes, when I was a little girl, I am non-binary, but like, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I think about that. I don't discount that part of my my life. I didn't realize that I was trans until somebody sent me an anonymous message on Tumblr that was three words that just said, are you cis? And I realized that I could not immediately answer the question. And it took me a second to sit back and just go, huh. And I had been surrounding myself with more and more trans friends and more Mm -hmm. and more specifically Mm -hmm. non-binary friends. And I joke that uh, 
it was kind of like a friend of mine, you know, coming into my life and opening up a trench coat and be like, hey, kid, you want a gender? I got tons. Here you go. Um, and that's kind of what it was like. And it's messy. And it's, I, I think... That's one of the the beautiful things about your book is that it shows that fluidity and messiness and trying to move away from this flattening of this is the one way that transness is experienced. It is a thing that the, the circular history problem of where the idea of transgender, I think this is not my original innovation. I'm, I'm, I'm positive other people have made this argument. It increasingly mirrors up to the the category of transsexual in ways that like is more about like the way in which it fits that assumption of the medical model, even though medicine itself has become much more open about it. The way in which it sort of locks itself to this, say, if I ask you about trans versus transgender, that is sort of where it was an umbrella. It increasingly has shrunk itself back down to what is the most mainstream image of what this can be. And then everything else is now lumped under non-binary. And I'm like, I'm not sure that that is much better because there's still two bins. And if you're confused about your bin, you're not supposed to be outside of a bin. You can't exist outside of a bin. You need a bin. And like, what if we thought more critically about the insistence upon bins? Um, Just get rid of bins. (laughs) Well, what do you want readers most to take with them from the book? And what's next for you? I think the thing I wish... I think I always hope people take away and this is like this is what has excited me about finding out that like weird queer nerds on the internet have read it like as opposed to sort of academics is and this is not an original insight this is sort of an insight coming from the field of feminist science and technology studies but it's just this that things could be different the internet we have now is not this inevitable path on which we walked there are lots of weird different ways to think about the internet like weird side paths that took for a while and circles back you know some of them dead end but our current moment is not inevitable and it takes us demanding that we change it or to say instead of just reproducing a new version of the thing that already is not great say how can we maybe look to the past to think about something differently Mm. how can we think about sometimes i think about it's like when i teach design um one of the ways i'll pitch would be like this old tech seems weird but i want you to work with it so that you think about what you do next differently so you stop and ask a question why am i doing that instead of just being like well this is how it's everybody does it so we're just going to reproduce the thing we know that works you don't have to reproduce the thing that works right now you can do something that's like a version from before that was weird and different because it might lead to a new kind of path and a new kind of understanding. This is like to pull a contemporary moment, like we don't have to reproduce Twitter. We can go back to having right. lots of weird different sites and that might not be bad. My kingdom for message boards again and not just the TikTokification of every single platform. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is like this push to unification. I'm saying what the history teaches us is this was not inevitable. Things could be different. And so to take away that, how can you make that difference? Because that's the only way we can have a change is there's no economic incentive for disturbance. We have to make our own weird Mastodon servers to do our (laughs) weird trans stuff on. And that'd be great. You might not use it forever. That's cool. You figure out what you need on it, but it's going to be weird and different. And that'll be what you need, Mm -hmm. you know? And so to take away from like, things could be different. And this history teaches us it could be different and that we need to own our own history or it will be taken from us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Avery, for talking with me and getting into all the weird trans internet spaces with me and going on this journey for everybody else. 
what are you working on now and where can people find more about you and your work online? Uh, so I guess right now, one of the things that I've been working on, so I have the Queer Digital History Project, which is sort of this, this ongoing collection of stuff. So one of the things that I've been doing, hopefully, if I'm lucky by the time this comes out, I've actually gotten to announce it, is I'm working on oral histories uh, with a variety of queer and trans folks who were sort of involved in some of these early spaces. So just having oral histories about like sites, I guarantee that if you are under 25, you never used, but were really important, you know, um, or like resources that were really important. So kind of developing this collection of oral histories that will be going up on the Queer Digital History Project. I mean, otherwise, I post stuff on my website because I have the book coming out. I've got like various kind of book talks. I'll be giving one of the keynotes at the Lewis and Clark University Gender Studies Symposium in Portland. So that is open to the wider public if you are in Portland for free um, on March 6th. But otherwise, like you can Google me. I am one of those people who has a Mastodon account I use. <laughs> you know, I'm on Blue Sky. I mostly post like weird photos of stuff I find at estate sales. I love it. I I grew up <laughs> a nerd. Very grandpa energy. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up a nerd. I'm still a nerd. And now I just post nerdy things. <laughs> <laughs> uh let's see uh a trans dude working on in internet archiving history a nerd never heard of mm -hmm. it <laughs> well thank you so much and uh, i encourage everybody to go out get the book even if you are are not an academic it is a fascinating read very accessible and thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me of course <laughs>